When Christ agreed to be our Messiah, and when He took upon Himself flesh, He also, by becoming our rescuer, necessarily attached Himself to the rescued people in such a way that He will be incomplete without His rescued people. It is important and it is helpful to know that our Savior suffered for us. But He suffers no more. He is now high and lifted up and He's given to the church. What a gift! He's given to the church as the exalted head. The high and lifted up one. The one who did suffer, but will never suffer again. That is helpful for us to see. So he is given to the church, again, what a blessed gift. He's given to the church, not once but twice, but he's now given to the church as head, verse 23, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Now I'm going to be honest with you. Those, that verse 23 is the most difficult verse in the book. And it's probably one of the most difficult verses in the New Testament. Having said that, Brother Doug's going to come up and explain it to us. But it, it is, without a doubt, it is, I think, the most difficult verse to understand in the book. We are His body, and we are the fullness of Him. We are the fullness of the one who fills all in all. What does that mean? What does it mean that the church is the fullness of of the one who fills all in all. I do not pretend to completely understand what Paul is saying here. And no one does. If you read the commentators, I mean, all the ones I read are grace, gracious enough to say, here's what we think, but this, this is a hard one. And out of all that, I, I think I maybe can give some thoughts but this is one of those places where we hear this and we pray that the Spirit illumines this for us and helps us to see what does it mean that our exalted head fills all in all and we are the fullness of Him. So first let's look at the analogy that Paul uses. We are His body, beginning of verse 23, we are His body. That one's not too hard to understand. But we don't, we, at the same time, we understand that Paul's using a different analogy here than he uses in 1 Corinthians 12. In 1 Corinthians 12, he uses the body analogy, but there it's different. The church is the whole body. And in 1 Corinthians 12, there are parts of the body that are the eye and the arm and different parts, but then there are also parts of the body that are the head. This analogy is different. This is also an analogy of all God's people, but in this analogy, Christ is the head, and we are the body. Now the head, we understand from our scriptures, that's pretty easy to understand. We could, we could take some more time and look at how head is used in the New Testament. Sometimes it's used to mean your noggin, you know, where the dancing girl said, bring me the head of John the Baptist on a platter, or, or Jesus says the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. 
But the vast majority of times, it means something pretty plain and pretty simple, which is the, the highest, superior, most superior authority. And so we are the body, and Christ is the head. So let's first think a, just a little bit about the body. What, what is a body, and what would a body mean in this analogy? I think that's not too hard to get to the bottom of. A body... What a body does is, is a body works for the mind and is like the actor of the mind. A body does what the mind wishes so that the mind can affect the world around it. That's what your body does. Without your body, you can have zero effect on the world around you. And by body, don't think you know from neck down. Think of everything physical and exterior. Mind would be, you know, the thing in here that I use sometimes. But body would be everything, meaning my mouth and voice and facial expressions and everything. The body is how the mind affects the world around it. And without a body, a mind has no way of engaging the world around it. So in this way, we see Christ is the head, we are the body, and so we are the means by which the head, Christ, affects the world in which we live. We are the body of Christ. Again, this is nothing new. It's nothing radical. The body of Christ is how it is that Christ, the Spirit of Christ in, in His church here, engages and affects the world around it. But here's where it gets difficult. The body is described as the fullness of Him, who fills all in all. And that's where we're going to have to struggle just a little bit to see perhaps what Paul is getting at. How is it that we as the body of Christ affect the world in such a way that's working towards or culminating in Christ's filling all in all? Let's think for just a little bit about some of the ways that the Scripture tells us that we might be used of Christ as the body, that He might be working towards this end goal of filling all in all in order to use His church to do such a thing as this. Let's first look at chapter 4. Chapter 4, verse 10, in which Paul says this. He says, He who descended is the one who ascended, who also ascended, far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. So here we come again to Paul's speaking of Christ as filling all things. But in order to fill all things, Paul said that Jesus did two things. He first descended, and then he ascended. So he descended, for what reason? To make atonement for man. But then he ascended. Why did Christ ascend? He told us. I go to the Father so that the Helper can come. So that the Helper can come and fill my people with power. Acts 1 verse 8. You will receive power when the Spirit comes upon you. Okay? So we see this empowering of God's people that takes place because Christ ascended and He ascended in order to fill all things. So the power that fills us has something to do, there's some connection with how Christ is going to fill all things. Now, a couple of verses later in verse 11 and 12, Paul goes on to say this, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and 
teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. There we go again. The fullness of Christ. So here Paul says that God has given to the church leaders to equip the body so that in maturity, in growing together to maturity to the full stature of a man in Christ, we might be working towards this goal of the fullness of Christ once again. So the people of God are equipped. Remember, they've been empowered by the Spirit, and Christ has gone, He's ascended, in order that His people would be empowered so that He will fill all in all. Now His people are being equipped so that the fullness of Christ will again fill all in all. So how might this actually be working towards this? Let me just, let me just offer... A few passages of Scripture here, like, for example, 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 3. Do you not know that we are to judge the angels? I'm not sure what that means. Are we judging bad angels? Are we judging good angels? What type of judgment is that? We're not exactly sure. But we are told that there is a judgment that takes place, and the judgment is a judgment over angels. Furthermore, Revelation 3 verse 21, The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. I, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. That is a staggering verse. The one who conquers, the one who's faithful to the end, the one who overcomes, we're told will sit with Christ on his throne. Revelation 2 and verse 26, the one who conquers and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. Or a similar thing in 2 Timothy 2 and verse 12, if we endure, we will also reign with him. Now, those things are not explained to us fully in the New Testament, but clearly they speak to us of some magnificent plan that God is working through his people, through his empowered people, to bring about this aspect of authority and rulership and judging by way of his people. Or at the very least, his people are part of it or included into it. And I think that that is something that at least is part of what Paul is referring to about Christ who fills all in all, but yet we are somehow the fullness of Christ. This is a magnificent thing for us to ponder. It's a magnificent thing for us to turn our soul's attention to and to think of just the incredible truth that Paul is saying to us about the connection, the, the parallels, the, the fullness of Christ somehow also being the fullness of his people, working together in order to fill all in all as Christ will, be, will do. Now, there's no way we can know what all that means, but maybe that's a little bit of, a, of an insight into this. But I, let me connect this together with a truth that the scriptures present to us that is also a staggering truth. Back on the previous page, look down at the bottom. The church as Christ's complement. The church as Christ's complement. The scriptures teach us that there is a certain connection between Christ and his church 
that goes far beyond any relationship, far beyond any other bond. It is a mutual indwelling. That there is a sense in which Christ indwells us and there is a sense in which we indwell Him. Scriptures speak of this in places like John 6, in verse 56, Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. Or John 15, verses 4 and 5, and even following after that, Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, it is he that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. We see also 1 John 3 and 24, Whoever keeps His commandments abides in God and God in Him. Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Now, here's what this is saying to us. And again, this is one of those things that we cannot fully understand. But here's what this is saying to us. In some real way, when Christ became our Savior, when Christ took upon Him the rescue mission to rescue His people, He in some way, made himself incomplete without us. Now, we've got to be really careful with that. Because that's, if we take that the wrong direction, that's dangerous. God does not need us. God is not incomplete without us. God didn't make people because he was just lonely and just needed somebody to love on. But in a real way, when Christ agreed to be our Messiah... And when he took upon himself flesh, he also, by becoming our rescuer, necessarily attached himself to the rescued people in such a way that he will be incomplete without his rescued people. What's an eternal rescuer without the ones he rescued? So in some way, Jesus Christ, by becoming our Messiah, has agreed to necessitate himself to having his rescued people in order for him to be complete as the Messiah that he has made himself to be. Those are deep theological waters that we can take too far. Because again, God does not need people But by lowering himself, by descending to be our Messiah, to be our rescuer, he has necessarily obligated himself to his own completeness attached to ours. There's a parallel here with the love of God. Remember back when we talked, we were in Zephaniah 3 and verse 17, we talked about the love of God, how God will exult over his people. And we talked about the nature of love. And we talked about when God made us the objects of his love, he was necessarily attaching together our happiness to his in such a way that if he truly loves us, if we're truly the objects of his love, then our happiness and his happiness are now together. Right? You can't genuinely love someone And be happy if they're not happy, right? Your happinesses are together. There's a parallel here with the completeness of our Messiah in which he agrees to to a a type of incompleteness. His, His eternal completeness 
is now dependent upon us being united together with him eternally as his rescued people. William Hendrick puts it this way. He reckons himself imperfect without us. That's a good way to think of it. He reckons himself imperfect without us. What an astounding thing that the one who is seated above all things, the one whose name is above every name, whose power and authority know no bounds, know no limits, would say, these are my people and I'm going to be their rescuer. And if I have obligated myself to be their rescuer, well, if I fail to rescue them, then I will be a rescuer without people. I will be a rescuer without the rescued. So when the Christ descends, as Paul said, when he descends to be the rescuer, to be the Messiah, he eternally assured your rescue. That's a staggering thought. Do you see what Paul wanted to impress upon his readers? An absolute certainty that their blessed hope is unshakable. The full power of God is brought to bear upon securing this eternal inheritance for them. Likewise, the Messiah who declared himself to be the rescuer of his people, has now by necessity made himself or reckoned himself to be imperfect without his people, without his rescued people. There is no more certain thing under the sun. There is no more certain thing in this entire universe that if you are in Christ, your eternal joy and your eternal happiness are absolutely, unshakably certain. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Truth That Transforms with pastor and Bible teacher Jason Wilkerson. Truth That Transforms is the daily teaching broadcast of Disciples Fellowship Church. We invite you to visit our website where you will find more resources to help in your journey of discipleship. You can find us at www.disciplesfellowshipnc.com or connect with our Facebook page at Facebook slash Disciples Fellowship NC. Truth That Transforms exists to glorify Jesus Christ through the teaching of His sanctifying and disciple-making Word.